Yes. Good morning and Christian greetings to each of you. Trust that we can worship the Lord together during this time um, together here as we look into Scripture. <clears throat> if God came to you and told you that he would give you anything that you want, what would you ask in return? What would you ask for? I have no idea what you're, what's going through your mind, but if you think back through Scripture and the Old Testament, King Solomon is actually given such a choice. And he asked for wisdom. He chose wisdom over everything else. And, and no wonder that he's called the wisest man who ever lived by many people. <clears throat> We're going to be talking about wisdom this morning. I couldn't help but notice two of the songs that we just sang talked about wisdom. The one of them was saying, grant us wisdom, grant us courage, four different times. There was five verses. But I was like, that just really uh, goes right along with what I want to be thinking, want us to think about together here this morning. We live in a time and culture where wisdom or where true wisdom is increasingly rare and is more needed than ever. Individuals may tout their ideas as wisdom or be considered wise by others, but just because you call something wise or wisdom doesn't make it so. Uh, that's not the measure by which we gauge wisdom. Along with that, truth is becoming increasingly obscured with widespread relativity. Um, counterfeit wisdom is frequently mistaken for true wisdom, and there is a significant difference, as we will see uh, as we look into Scripture. This morning, I'm, we're going to take a look at uh, some verses from James chapter 3, and I've entitled this morning's message, Pursuing Wisdom. And along with that, we're going to be distinguishing between the wisdom of this world and the wisdom of God. Um, James chapter 3, verses 13 to 18 are going to be, it's going to be our text this morning. <clears throat> James is an interesting book, and uh, I'm not going to attempt to give context entirely, but the verse 1 of chapter 3, uh, James is admonishing those that would like to be teachers, and, uh, and he, then he go, proceeds in chapter 3 about the taming of the tongue and the power of words. And, um, and so it, it seems like the context here is talking about teachers or those that want to be teachers. Now, we may say, well, wait a minute, I'm not a teacher. I don't need, this doesn't really apply to me then. But I would say that we do well to, for each one of us to consider ourselves teachers. We are influencing others around us. We are teaching those around us. <clears throat> we probably all know people who are able to articulate well, but don't necessarily have something of value to say. Um, just because you speak well does not make you wise. And I think that that is kind of what he's leading to here at the end of chapter 3. 
the Greeks considered being wise and having superior knowledge as having superior knowledge and philosophical ideas, while the Jews defined it with much more nuance and, and more richly by saying that it skillfully applies, it's skillfully applying knowledge that what we do know to how we live, to practical living. How we use what we do know. Verses 11 and 12 uh, of chapter 3 here has uh, a number of, or has several rhetorical questions regarding speech. And then that leads right into verse 13, where James asks a very direct question. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? The way the King James puts it, ESV says, who is wise and understanding among you? And then he proceeds to answer that. Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom, or the SV, by his good conduct, let him show his works with meekness of wisdom. The idea of good conversation here, in, translated in the King James, is way of life. Conversation is a way of life. So out of a good way of life or good conduct, as it says in the ESV, that it shows his works in, with meekness of wisdom. <clears throat> James is challenging these believers that he's writing to to carefully think about this question. Who is a wise man among you? How do you determine whether a person is wise and endued with knowledge? And this idea of endued with knowledge or understanding has to do with a specialist or a professional who could skillfully apply his expertise to a practical situation. Are you wise and understanding? And Jesus answers this with, uh, James answers this right in the, at the end of this verse. A wise and an understanding person's conduct or good conduct or way of life in which he models his actions that come from a meekness of wisdom. And this concept of having a meekness of wisdom seems to be a key difference between the two kinds of wisdom that he describes here in subsequent verses. Meekness of wisdom. What do we mean by that? I've heard meekness described various ways. Um, one definition that I have heard that I think really is a good definition, is a, a good way of thinking about this, is someone that has a teachable spirit. Um, it's not that you don't have strength that goes along with that, but it's, it's harnessing that strength in a way that you are teachable. I have also heard it compared to that of a horse, strength under control. But a teachable spirit would convey some of that same idea, but, but being teachable when it comes to wisdom. Not a know-it-all, not someone that is always uh, trying to spout out what he knows, but rather being willing to learn and to be taught. And that also involves then discerning between truth 
and falsehood. And having a genuine teachable spirit requires a great deal of humility and an awareness that I have much to learn from others around me. And that's not always done. But it doesn't mean that I have nothing to offer those around me either. I can help others grow as well, but I can always learn more from others as well. I have not and will never arrive and finish learning. It's a lifelong process of learning. <clears throat> James then contrasts this humble, teachable, godly wisdom with a false wisdom in these next verses. <clears throat> There's only two types of wisdom. And sometimes that can be a little bit well, it can simplify things, but it can also be a bit more disconcerting as, evil, as well as we think about that. But there's only two types of wisdom, a true wisdom and a false wisdom. And the differences are stark when you take time to actually look at them and, and evaluate the difference. False wisdom is not from God. It is a counterfeit wisdom that we can easily convince is true wisdom but it is something that is developed apart from God and outside of God. The problem with this false wisdom is its origin and its underlying motivations. And uh, let's read verses 14 to 16 together here. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Uh, selfish ambition is translated strife in the King James, but those are the underlying motivators of false wisdom, of wisdom that's not from God, of human wisdom. And if you take it further, it's not unfair to describe it as demonic wisdom. It's Satan's counterfeit to true wisdom. But he says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, that's not true wisdom. Think about a moment how broad these two underlying motivations are. Bitter jealousy. That's an envious or a resentful attitude toward others, toward those around us. How often do I do something because I'm upset with at another or that another person has wronged me? How often do I react to another person's actions? Speaking to myself, our covetous and jealous hearts cause us to do some irrational things at times. Our tendency of comparing ourselves with others, those around us, is invariably going to lead to feelings of inferiority and jealousy. 
it just doesn't go to a good place. So this idea of, of bitter jealousy being the motivation of what, of what we call wisdom, that's, that is false. And then the other one, selfish ambition. This may even hit closer to home for most of us. How will what I'm doing further my own goals or make me look good? We can always find ways to advance our own ambitions and do things that put us in a positive light. But if that's the reason we do things, we're never going to find fulfillment in it. It's an empty um, cycle of doing that. If we do things primarily for the benefit that we derive from it, that's a form of self selfish ambition. As I thought about it, these two attributes, or varying degrees of them, if you will, of jealousy and selfish ambition are significant contributors to why our society is like it is today. I mean, if you think about it, it's the essence of what is usually descri often described as the American dream. Jealousy and selfish ambition is what gets us there. It's the heart of what makes capitalism work, if you really think about it. It's what we religiously cling to as my constitutional rights. Individualism has almost become a state religion for us. And it's also what makes social media so powerful and so addictive and destructive. Selfish ambition is a powerful and effective motivation to get things done. There's no doubt about it. But if we're doing it for the wrong reason, it's not from God. So if we choose to act on either of these attitudes of jealousy or selfish ambition, it's not from God. It is likely that we will want to boast about it. And it's probably not truth. And I mean real truth but rather a false truth, something that we've convinced ourselves to be true even though it is not. He talks about that at the end of verse uh, thir uh, 12, 13, 14 there, um, where he talks about that uh, do not boast and be false to the truth. In today's relativistic society, it is not uncommon to hear somebody discuss my truth in comparison to his truth or your truth, implying that truth only exists in the form that we want it to exist. We choose what is true and what isn't, as does each one of us, and that just leads to nowhere good. But this lie may be the greatest deception facing believers today. Because if there's no absolute truth, then there's no common ground on which to even engage about a subject. Believers can be tripped up by this today as well. Whether it comes to interpreting current events or the latest conspiracy theories circulating or unbiblical perspectives on God and theology, of clinging to my truth is dangerous. Jeremiah 17.9 makes it very clear that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
Our heart is not something that can really be trusted. James is clear this kind of wisdom, although popular and acceptable among believers all around us, is not wisdom that comes from God. He describes it as earthly, unspiritual or natural, demonic or devilish. That's far from any kind of complementary descriptor of these characteristics. But it does describe what is celebrated in our unbelieving culture. And then at the end of this, he restates these two underlying motivations by summing up the description of false demonic wisdom. Jealousy and selfish ambition ultimately are going to bring chaos, confusion, disorder, and every imaginable vile and evil thing. That's what it leads to. Godly wisdom does none of this. And perhaps the results of wisdom are the best way to discern whether wisdom is godly or counterfeit and demonic. James then continues in verse 17 with description of the true wisdom. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. <clears throat> in contrast to this false wisdom that we just saw described, the human counterfeit Godly wisdom is distinctively different with these eight characteristics spelled out. And when I look at these, these eight qualities given here of true wisdom, godly wisdom is like a mixture of the Beatitudes and the fruit of the Spirit uh, with these descriptors. Now, there's not, it, it's not just that, but I mean, uh, but when I look at it, it looks very similar to the qualities that you see described there. And the obvious difference is that as you look at these qualities, none of these are going to bring the disorder, confusion, chaos, and evil that counterfeit wisdom does. Rather, true wisdom from God is going to bring a sense of order, a sense of peace and unity and goodness that can't be explained or replicated apart from the power of God. I'm just going to briefly talk about these, these six, I'm sorry, these eight uh, characteristics. Pure. God's wisdom will lead to a pure, to lead to a purity of life. Just the way that we live is going to be pure. Peaceable. Human wisdom brings competition, rivalry, and war. But God's wisdom brings peace that's based on holiness not peace by compromising principles. Gentleness, moderation, gentleness without weakness. Open to reason. This is one that just strikes me. God's wisdom makes a person easy to live with and to work with. A willingness to hear all sides of a question 
the ability to disagree without becoming disagreeable, and a willingness to dialogue civilly with someone who has strong opposing views without compromising truth. But being able to discuss things even though we don't agree and there's differences, but just being able to engage in, in healthy ways. Full of mercy. God's wisdom is controlled by mercy. Being willing to extend mercy to those that don't deserve it. But just doing that, again, it's, it's overflowing from our lives. Full of good fruits. God's wisdom will result in good fruits. Um, it will produce good fruit, good works. It's for the glory of God. It's not for our own benefit, but it's for the glory of God. Impartial. Some translations would describe this as unwavering. But when, there's, when you have God's wisdom, there is no need to waver. Even when pressured to do so with opposing, uh, from an opposing viewpoint. And you see this so often in culture around us where people will change their position on things for, based on pressure or by uh, what is convenient or expedient at the moment without principle. Sincere. Uh, this without hypocrisy is another way this is translated. A hypocrite literally means one who wears a mask. So without hypocrisy means someone that doesn't wear a mask or sincere. God's wisdom doesn't have any room for insincerity and pretense, but rather openness and honesty and transparency, a healthy vulnerability. <clears throat> and then God's wisdom will produce blessings. We are, what we are is what we live. What we live is what we sow. And what we sow is going to be determined what we reap. And in ver the last verse here talks about, in God's wisdom, that there's peace sown and there's peace reaped. We're going to reap God's blessings in that. Again, the contrast is remarkable. If we live in human wisdom, we sow sin and violence and war, and we reap confusion and chaos compared to this, which brings peace. I want to focus now a bit on getting wisdom. And um, Proverbs 4 5 says, get wisdom, get insight, do not forget, do not turn away from the words of my mouth. There's something there that requires us to go after, to pursue. James 1 5, however, tells us if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. And then Proverbs 2.6, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So we have get wisdom, ask for wisdom, God gives wisdom. What I see in this is that while God gives us wisdom, we also share in the responsibility of pursuing it. We ask God for it because it's something that we see our own need for and we desperately want. 
We chase after it. We grasp it. We dream about it. It consumes us. I don't know how many of you have read the classic novel, Moby Dick. I'm just curious. There's a handful of you, a number of you have. As I was thinking about this, I had to think that what that story is about. Captain Ahab is so consumed with finding and killing this elusive giant white whale that bit off his leg at the knee. He does it, I mean, it, it consumes all of him. And in a sense, that's what we are to do about godly wisdom. Do we pursue godly wisdom with similar tenacity and determination? Ultimately, the only source of wisdom lies beyond and outside of ourselves. Proverbs is known as a wisdom book, and it speaks much about wisdom and personifies it like a young man. It, it characterizes him like a young man, in contrast to a fool. And these terms correlate with what James describes as uh, false and demonic wisdom and godly wisdom. But the New Testament also speaks of wisdom and the source of wisdom, and I want to look at a couple of these. Repeatedly, Jesus is identified as a source of wisdom. Just a couple of verses that I want to mention here. But to those who are called, this is from 1 Corinthians 1, who are called, those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And then on in verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And then in Colossians 2, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and those at Laodicea, for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. But then there's other divine sources as well. For 2 Timothy 3, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Emphasizing the scripture, and this would have been the Old Testament writings that would have been referred to here. And then in Ephesians 1, verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in knowledge of him. We cannot be wise apart from God. God is the standard of wisdom, the source of wisdom, the keeper of wisdom. We live in an information age and are inundated with a constant barrage of random and unconnected pieces of information. It's just the age that we live in. Information does not equate knowledge or wisdom. Rather, it often adds to the confusion. How we navigate this torrential barrage of information will significantly affect our ability to grow in godly and true wisdom. Information is a lot like food. Our diet, our intake 
of information is going to shape us into healthy or unhealthy ways. Like physical food, a diet of junk food is going to result in long-term health issues. In 1992, the U.S. Department of Agriculture introduced the food pyramid to give us a visual guide to healthy eating. And what's interesting is looking, this is the original one. It's interesting how much that has evolved over the last 30 years. Um, but it, it's just a reference. Uh, it, it's a visual guide to thinking about how much we eat of what. About a year ago, I, was, I read a book entitled The Wisdom Pyramid by Brett McCracken. <clears throat> and he used the analogy of a food pyramid to visualize a healthy wisdom diet. Um, and I was very challenged when I read it. And this week I was again challenged as I reread portions, I was convicted that how quickly I had forgotten some of the practical advice on such relevant issues. And so I, I recommend this book to anyone that has interest in reading it or, or getting, uh, getting it. I highly recommend it. It's a valuable tool in evaluating our own habits as we consider both the importance of godly wisdom and the stark contrast to false wisdom. Without going into detail, I want to just give you a bird's eye view of the premise and the challenge of getting godly wisdom in today's culture and information age. And I think it's a good framework for us to consider how true godly wisdom is developed in our own lives. Left to our own natural tendencies, our, I doubt it, our lives would look like this pyramid. I'll just leave it like that. I don't know what it would look like, but I don't think it would look like this, this pyramid, this diagram. So working up from the bottom of this wisdom pyramid, the Bible is our most important source of wisdom because it literally, it is literally the eternal God revealing himself to us. It's the foundation of true wisdom. Scripture speaks to all of life. It applies to all of life today. And we must use Scripture to define our way of thinking about life, our paradigm, not the other way around. It's dangerous and unwise to shape Scripture around what we think versus allowing Scripture to shape us. Scripture is valuable as a whole. The selective nuggets of verses here and there don't give us full context and can be used to distort the actual message. Just a quick illustration of this that I often think about. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. How often is that verse just used? Like, you can do anything. The context is contentment. I can be content wherever God places me. Should Scripture motivate us? Scripture should motivate us to worship in obedience. We do because we love God. And scripture isn't fully understood. The author is Almighty God, revealed to ancient writers, and we're living in today's culture. We will always be able to learn more and better understand what God has revealed through scripture. The second level is that of the local church. The church, the people of God, is second only to the word of God 
as a source of reliable and transformative wisdom. The church brings fullness and focus to our understanding and application of God's truth in ways that are going to go deeper than, ju- than a just Jesus and me kind of attitude. The church reminds me that it's not all about me, but it's about God. Our me-centered culture tells us to look deep within ourselves to find who we really are and then express that to the world. The gospel shows us that our hearts are sinful and that we, are, that we need uh, to look up to God and, uh, and that we don't need to express that, but rather we need redemption. So the gospel is countercultural. A church-going Hollywood actor recently stated, my faith is important to me, but no church defines me or my life. My values define who I am. Basically, I don't care what anyone else says, I decide what I believe. And this mentality where a person's personal values override any conflict with a church's position is far too common. Do we really believe that my experience in my lifetime supersedes the truth of consistent church teaching for centuries? The third level is that of nature. Nature is one big, beautiful symphony that is always playing if only we take out our earbuds long enough to listen. Creation speaks to the bigness of God and gives us all a healthy sense of perspective. Whether we're looking at the stars at night, massive mountains or rock formations, or through a microscope. And the human body is the crowning achievement of God, God's creation, and truly amazing and intricate in its function. Yet it is all a humbling reality that we are creatures and not the creator. Reading books enables us to step into another author's, to the author's world, giving our attention to the author's perspective for an extended period of time. Unlike tweets or blogs or podcasts, reading books requires us to spend extended time with the author which creates a much better opportunity for understanding and synthesizing what we have read. Reading books, like education, trains our brains to better handle complex information and then to reflect and evaluate rather than just accept what we have read. To read well is not to take everything at face value that we read, but rather it's to understand what the author's argument is learn from it, but check it against what else we do know. The the fifth level here is beauty. Wisdom is more than just what we know in our heads, but it also involves our bodies and our senses and our emotions. Beauty works at three levels. It engages and stirs our hearts. It reveals truth at a subconscious level, and it forms what we love. That's why we love art, music, movies, etc. There's often contrast in beauty, the sweet and the salty, the triumph and the tragedy, the light and the dark, the good and the evil. 
Beauty also silences us, but silence is a scarce resource in today's noisy world. Beauty and Sabbath go together. Both are extravagant. Both are unproductive. Both are unnecessary. Both are reflections of God's abundance and a reminder that creation is a gift for us to receive. And then the top one is internet and social media. Like sweets and junk food, it should be consumed sparingly. The problem is we don't. Like an all-you-can-eat buffet, we just keep going back for more. We know it isn't a healthy diet, but we lack the discipline to stop reaching for another chip or a piece of candy. In the long term, this gluttony and lack of discipline will make us unhealthy. It won't develop godly wisdom. It will turn, us, turn into spiritual diabetes. It will lead to cancer of the soul. It's, addic it's addictive and requires intentional intervention for this portion of our consumption not to displace other far more important dietary habits. <clears throat> In today's world of information gluttony, godly wisdom requires intentionality and discipline. A key given in James 3 is that of a teachable spirit. Like the discipline of spending more time in our Bibles rather than scrolling through social media feeds. Like developing a hunger for the nutrients of a healthy local church more than the teeth-rotting clicks of online clicks, teeth-rotting candy of online clicks. Like immersing ourselves more in the serene spaces of nature rather than the clang noise of the latest news. Godly wisdom goes against the grain of this low attention span, bite-size information age. Instead, opting for larger and deeper chunks. Godly wisdom is also eager to seek guidance from others and having a healthy skepticism about our own instincts and tendencies. Godly wisdom is focusing our gaze on God, looking to Him, praying to Him, zealously seeking after Him. It's quieting ourselves in a noisy age and turning our hearts and our ears to God's speaking to us through Scripture, through His church and His creation. Godly wisdom is a deep desire to know the world with God. Not like him, not like God, but with God, pursuing his presence. So in conclusion, James is calling us to clearly distinguish between true wisdom and the counterfeit wisdom of Satan. This false wisdom is rooted in jealousy and selfish ambition and will result in confusion and all kinds of things. On the other hand, true wisdom from God is going to bring the qualities that, uh, of pure, gentle, open to reason, merciful, impartial, and sincere, producing good fruit. So my challenge to you is let's relentlessly pursue godly wisdom. Ask God in faith. God, ask God for it. Be teachable and ask God to root out any jealousy and selfish ambition and develop a healthy 
diet of, that allows godly wisdom to prosper. And I believe that when we do this, God is going to answer that and give us the true wisdom if we genuinely crave it. Let's stand together for prayer. <clears throat> Father, I need your wisdom. I need true wisdom in my life. And I ask that you shape my appetites in such a way that will be fertile ground to cultivate this true wisdom. I pray that that be the desire for each one of us here this morning as well. As we go from here, as we move about from day to day in our routines of life, I just pray that you would remind us of the, uh, the uselessness of, of the false wisdom that Satan has counterfeited, but rather that we would focus on the true wisdom that you have in store for each one of us as we allow you to, to provide. I just ask that you would give us this, this discernment, give us this godly wisdom in, uh, in abundance. We ask that in faith, and we ask that you... Uh, you provide that for us. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.